I am so glad that we're here, and it is Saturday, May 23rd, May 23rd, 2020, which is, which is great, and we are in Bill's story, and today, like we do every week, we are going to be covering some vital ground, and we're going to be covering ground in depth at levels that most situations do not account for. We're going to cover things in depth. Last week, just to review what we did last week, which is always important, and unfortunately, as I said, last week I forgot to record the session, but I'm recording it now, so that was good. Last week we were examining the conversation that took place in November of 1934 between Bill Wilson and Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby Thatcher does not know the problem of alcoholism. He doesn't know about the physical allergy. He doesn't know about the twist of the mind. He doesn't know about the effect. He doesn't know any of that stuff. Dr. Silkworth has not met him and Dr. Silkworth has never had an opportunity to impart any kind of knowledge on Ebby Thatcher about what the problem is. And then we've got Bill Wilson, and Bill knows very well what the problem is. He knows that the problem is, is, is very serious, and on page 7, in the first full paragraph of the page, at the end of the paragraph, it says, I, best of all, I met a kind doctor, Dr. Silkworth, who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily, the allergy, and mentally, the twist of the mind. So Bill knows the problem. Bill understands what the problem is. He doesn't have a solution for it. Nobody has ever told him about a solution. Silkworth didn't know that there was a solution. He told uh, uh, Lois Wilson that she was going to have to give Bill over to the undertaker or the asylum because Dr. Silkworth doesn't know that there's a solution to this. And in the Oxford group, they were not really concerned with alcoholism. They were not really concerned with anything to do with alcoholism. They were people that were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And this is what the Oxford group was for. They were not formed to be an alcoholic solution. And they admitted later on in the 1960s, one of their spokespeople said, we didn't know what we were into. We didn't know what we had. We didn't understand that we had a, a solution to this. And Roland Hazard, after being treated by Dr. Jung in Switzerland, is going to come back to New York City. And he is going to be treated, not treated, he is going to be exposed to the steps of the Oxford Group Movement. And the Oxford Group movement is going to introduce him through Sam Shoemaker. He is going to be introduced to two men, Shep Cornell and Sebra Graves Jr. And Shep Cornell and Sebra Graves Jr. are friends of his in the Oxford Group movement. But Shep Cornell, excuse me, Sebra Graves Jr. 
is from East Dorset, Vermont. And he is an alcoholic who is recovering in the Oxford group without knowing the problem. And what we see on, in, in the big book on page 263 in the story, He Sold Himself Short, we see the six steps of the Oxford group movement. It said complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, and continued work with other alcoholics. What they were doing wasn't work with alcoholics so much as they were giving testimony as to what God did for them to other Christians. So the drunk squad of the Oxford group, which is what these alcoholics came to be known, they kind of changed it to continued work with other alcoholics. And by following this six-step program, they were staying sober. And what we're going to see today, and we're going to just review for a few more minutes before we move forward, because it's important to kind of get back up to speed. It's important to kind of get back up to speed. Bill Wilson is being presented with a couple of fabulous realities. He is being presented with somebody, Ebby Thatcher, who he knows to be a very serious alcoholic. And Ebby Thatcher is not drinking, and he seems to be happy in his release. One of the things that's very important to remember is if you came into your first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous and you saw a bunch of people that we have even today that are what I like to call stark, raving, abstinent. And when they're stark, raving, abstinent, what they're really doing is they are dieting with group support. And when they're dieting with group support, they are miserable. They're like dry drunks. If you've ever been around a dry drunk, there are many people, excuse me, there are many people who are alcoholics or heavy drinkers, and they stop drinking, but they're just miserable. They're just miserable people. They're angry, and they're scared, and they're frustrated, and they're just miserable, miserable, miserable. But if you're around a person who is truly sober, if you're around a person who is having a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, they are a joy to behold. So one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is that there is a vast universe of difference between those who are sober and those who are dry drunks. Because the sober person is sober and they're happy in their release. Very, very important to distinguish between those things. And Ebby is fresh-skinned and glowing. His roots are grasping a new soil. He is happy in his release. And Bill Wilson is being presented with a God-based, spiritual-based solution to his problem of alcoholism. And Bill is not really, he's not really comfortable with this. He concedes that there's a God, and the spheres certainly had their music. What does that mean? Somebody called me up today. They were so cute. They says, I'm in my third day, and my sponsor wants me to ask you, what does the spheres really have? The spheres are the planets and the stars. 
And when you look at the planets and the stars, you generally get music in your brain, if you're anything like me, that isn't really there. Because you cannot gaze at the stars, the moon, the planets, and the beautiful heavenly bodies up in the sky and not feel that music. So when he says the spheres really had their music, this is what he's talking about. Bill writes this very, very beautifully, just beautifully. And Bill is looking at this solution and he's not real comfortable with it and he remembers grandpa griffith now remember that bill wilson was raised by his maternal grandparents the griffith william g wilson the g stands for griffith and bill remembers going to church on sunday morning with grandpa griffith and grandpa would go and he didn't like the he liked everything but he didn't like the fact that the preacher often tried to tell him how he must believe so bill's grandpa he had no problem believing in a god but he didn't want to be told how to believe and he didn't want to be told what specifically to believe in and bill has doubts if we go to page 11 Remember this paragraph that we talked about last week. This is vital to our understanding because every single one of the people that are on this line right now and every single person above the age of probably three years old, five years old, whatever, has looked up at the sky with tears in their eyes and said, why me? Why my mother? Why my father? Why my child? Why the person that I love? God, can you save them? And they died anyway. God, can you give me thinness? And we ate more food and got even fatter. God, can you restore my health? And our health continued to fail. So we start to believe that there is a God, maybe, but that God certainly isn't going to do anything for me. And I think that that's where a lot of us come from. And I've seen nuns and ministers and priests and rabbis and lay people and deacons of the church coming into our meetings for decades and decades of my life. And they have those same doubts, too, that there is a difference between religion and there is a vast difference between religion and spiritual practices. That it is Saturday, and I could go to the synagogue, and I could pray until the walls come down, and it isn't going to relieve my compulsion to eat Reese's peanut butter cups. Because until I start taking that faith and translating it into action, I'm not going to get anywhere. And that's something that you're going to hear me repeating. That unless I take my faith and translate that into action, nothing is going to happen. I want to make that very, very clear. But if we look on page 11, and Bill is he's wrestling with this idea of is there a God, isn't there a God, what should I do? He says on the top of 11, the wars which had been fought, this is the second paragraph on 11, the wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. 
Now, that sentence is as timeless as the moon and the stars that we just talked about. You could have written that sentence thousands of years ago. You could write that sentence 1,000, 20,000 years from now. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. And we look at man's injustice to man, and we look at the unbalanced unfairness of our world today, and we somehow blame God. But what we don't do is we don't stop to consider that God didn't make a bunch of robots God made a bunch of human beings, and in each human being is that ability to do good or to do not good. That without wrong, there's no right. That without right, there's no wrong. Without good, there's no bad. Without bad, there's no good. And so we have choices. We have choices to make as not only as individual human beings, we have choices to make as humanity. As a society, as a city, as a country, as a county, as a state, as a nation, we have decisions that we can make that will either help people or not help them. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that God isn't the one doing this. And frequently I'll get asked, well, if there was a Holocaust, how could there be a God? If there was all these murders in the 1960s and lynchings and racial imbalance in this country in the 1960s, and if there was this and if there was that, and here's my answer, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an understanding of everything that happens or doesn't happen in the universe. It is beyond my pay grade to understand every drop of rain that falls and why it fell there. I don't have that knowledge. But let's continue. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good, judging from what I had seen in Europe and since the power of God in human affairs was negligible, the brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. And there are people on this line right now that have been raped. And there are people on this line right now that have been violated and abused physically or abandoned. They have been molested and they have been left to, they have been hung out to dry by an injustice. And there are people on this line right now that are wondering, can they believe? And let me assure you that you can. But we're going to go into the specific of how to formulate that higher power today and we're going to review it next week. But we're going to be talking about that today. Because I believe that when you were raped or you were molested or your mother died of cancer when you were nine years old or when your father remarried to a person who wasn't nice to you or your mother remarried to a person who wasn't nice to you, I believe God cried too. I believe that God was weeping too. I believe that sometimes God has to just put his head in his hands and cry. And he was there. 
but he gave human beings free will. And on 12, we're wrestling now with this idea of a God-based solution. And in the middle of the page, the world is going to change forever to 10,000 generations yet unborn, to 20,000 generation unborn. My friend, Ebby, notice friend is in small letters, suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And what happens too often is we stop at believing that we can be any religion that we want to believe, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we spend inordinate amounts of time as sponsors and sponsees formulating food plans. We talk incessantly about food plans. And we spend a lot of time with yellow light foods and red light foods and green light foods. I've yet to have a yellow light food. I, I have, I've been in this program for 41 years. I don't understand the concept of a yellow light food. Either the food is something I'm going to obsess about and I want to negotiate, so that means it must go, or it's not. So I don't know what a yellow light food is. But that aside... What we don't spend enough time with as sponsors or sponsees, we don't spend enough time helping people who are lost formulate an idea of a God that is personal and workable for them. And I don't just mean you can be any religion that you want. Yes, you can. Or you can be an atheist. Or you can be an agnostic. An atheist is a person who believes that there is no God. Can you recover if you're an atheist? Yes. Jimmy Burwell re recovered. And Jimmy Burwell, he wrote the, the story, A Different Slant. He was the AA's original atheist. And he power drove this idea home of God as you understand God. See, it wasn't Ebby that power drove it in the big book. It was, it was, it was uh, Jimmy Burwell. An agnostic is one who lacks knowledge. He's not sure, she's not sure if there is a God or there's not a God. Ag means without, gnostic means knowledge. Agnostic means without knowledge. So they're not really sure. And many of us, including Bill Wilson, who was an agnostic for a while. Remember, the name of the chapter is We Agnostics, and who's penning the book but Bill Wilson. He, write a he wrote a chapter, We Agnostics. If he wasn't agnostic at that time, he would have ch titled the chapter You Agnostics, or Those Agnostics, but he, ch he titled the chapter We Agnostics. Later on, he became quite a believer, but that's for a different day. That's for a different time. We agnostics, ag means without, gnostic means knowledge. So if you're not really sure or you're an atheist or you're a strong believer, can you recover equally well? Yes, you can. The only thing that is required, now just skip down to the next italics paragraph here, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Now, this is a very important sentence. That's why it's in italics. 
It cost them extra money, which they didn't have, to put italics in the book. They really were operating on a shoestring that you cannot even imagine. Bill Wilson, he wasn't, he wasn't able to pay bills, and Dr. Bob wasn't, you know, they were in very bad shape, but they knew that they needed to put certain things in italics, and they gave it a lot of thought and consideration. What is the key to step two? It's willingness to believe. You don't have to believe. You just have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And if you are willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, nothing more is required to make your beginning. And what is a beginning? A beginning is step three. And what is step three? It is the formal terms of surrender to do four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. And if we're not doing 4 through 12 every day for the rest of our life, we are going to eat again. And for us, to eat is to die. So this is very, very important information. And when I go to conventions or I go to retreats, and you, many of you know I've been to your cities, I've been to your, I've been to your hamlets, I've been to your towns doing these retreats, or go, you know, we've met up at the conventions in Newark or in Los Angeles, and you see people taking pictures of their food and sending it to their sponsor. And that's fine. I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And if that's what you need to do, God bless you. That's fantastic. When I'm in Los Angeles, my sponsor's usually sitting right there with me so he can see what I'm eating. But the bottom line is we often don't take pictures and we often don't spend the time necessary to formulate a God that is workable in our lives with the same verb, the same energy that we work out a food plan. Let's correct that now. If you are a sponsor, if you are sponsoring other people, spend that time. It doesn't have to be an inordinate amount of time. We're going to work the steps quickly, especially with what we're going to read today. I'm not saying have them do essays and book reports and stuff. I'm not saying take a bunch of time, but emphasize that this is what they can do. There's absolutely no reason why we have people who are reluctant to move forward in their program, and when you really analyze it, it is their lack of belief in that power greater than themselves that had been holding them back all along. And when you see people struggling in four, and you see people struggling in nine, you generally are seeing people struggling with two and 10. Two and 10 are the most underutilized steps Three and four are the most misunderstood. Two and ten, excuse me, is your key to, to, to finding the gate to relapse and the struggle bus, as my friend in Colorado says, the struggle bus. I love that. And now we're going to start with today's reading, and we're going to go through some vital, vital, vital information here. We're going to go to page 12. 
Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. And how do we demonstrate that we want him enough? By taking action. Notice him is in capitals. He's talking about God. How do I prove to you that I have faith? By working the steps. How do I prove to myself that I want God in my life? By taking action. The difference between religious beliefs and spirituality is in the translation of faith into action. I'm going to say that again because it's vitally important. The difference between, for many, the difference between religious belief and spiritual growth is in translating that faith into action and helping other people. When I go to the synagogue, I am not expected to help anyone else. I'm not knocking Judaism. I do not know anything about Catholicism or Protestant practices. I am, I am Jewish. But when I go to the synagogue, yes, they may hit on me for money. But I can sit in there and donate money and never, ever, ever lift a finger to help another human being, and I'll be okay. In here, that is not true. It is absolutely vital for my survival that I take that faith and that I translate that faith into action. As long last I saw, I felt, I believe. What did he see? Let's take a look because you can read those words and things can get past you. What is it that he saw? Did he see God? No. Did he see an angel? No. What did he see? He saw an alcoholic who he knew from childhood. He knew the type of alcoholic Ebby Thatcher was. Edwin Throckmorton Thatcher was an alcoholic that was so drunk that Bill often said, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Ebby Thatcher, I'm going to quit drinking. And Ebby Thatcher used to say, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Bill Wilson, I'm going to quit drinking. So in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. The message had depth and weight because Bill Wilson didn't need convincing that Ebby was an alcoholic. He didn't need to hear Ebby's story. He didn't need Ebby to relate stories of his alcoholism to him. He knew them backwards and forwards and was a major character in many of them. So when it says, I saw... What is it that he saw? He saw a drunk. But let's take it further. He saw a drunk that wasn't drinking, and the drunk was happy about not drinking. That's the key. That's the key. That's it right there. That's what he saw. He saw a man that he knew to be an alcoholic not drinking, and the man was happy to be not drinking. That's the difference. Because if you look at this addiction, 
and you look at this addiction and we start wondering, this is why the chapter uh, A Vision for You was written. A chapter of Vision for You was written to show us what life will be like sans the food, without the food. And Bill Wilson is thinking to himself, if I'm not drinking, what, am I, what is my life going to be like? And here's Ebby Thatcher, fresh-skinned and glowing. I know we're going very slow here, but this is very important information that most sponsors don't go into with you. Most people don't know it. So you can listen to meetings and go to meetings, and nobody is going to comment on, I saw... I felt, what did he feel? What he felt, and this is very specific, what he felt was hope. This is key. This is key. See, this paragraph here, I saw, I felt, I believed, this is of vital importance. So when you are sponsoring, what he saw was an alcoholic not drinking. What he and was happy about it. What he felt was that if Ebby Thatcher, this drunken bum, this guy who his family didn't want him around, if this guy could not drink and be happy about it, maybe I can do the same thing. Maybe I can do the same thing. So what he saw, Ebby was a drunk, not drinking, happy about it. I felt hope. You see, here's the thing that you can give to the compulsive overeater that no one else can give them. I'm not knocking psychiatry. I'm not knocking therapy or, or psychology. One of my dear friends who lives in... Um, Naperville, I think. He is a psychologist. He's a dear, dear friend. Love him to death. Hypnotists, therapists, doctors, surgeons, they cannot give uh, the, the compulsive overeater hope. Why can't they give the person hope? Because the only way to give an addict hope is to show the addict that you are one of them through identification to show them what you did to recover and to show them, why do I use the word show rather than tell? To demonstrate. Francis of Assisi, he said, preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. You show that addict that you can recover and that you're happy about it, now you can give that person hope, and no one else in their life was able to give them hope. So I saw, I felt hope. Now what is the last one? I believed. You see, Ebby, through his sobriety, albeit temporary, Ebby, through his sobriety, gave Bill Wilson hope and gave Bill Wilson belief. Belief in what? Belief that recovery was possible? Yes. But what
what else did he give him a belief in? That if he practiced these principles, what are the principles? The principles are the steps. If he did these things, he too could recover, and it gave him a belief in a power greater than himself. So this sentence, at long last, I saw. What did he, I, I know I'm going over this a lot, but I'm going to continue doing this because this is vital information for you and the people that you sponsor and the people they sponsor and so on and so forth after, you know, 10,000 years have passed. I saw sobriety with happiness was possible. I felt hope. I believed. I believed that I too could recover. I believed that if I just grasped this way of life and grasped this willingness to believe in a power greater than myself and translate that into action, if I could put italics on my words now, the words I would italicize are and translate it into action. Because sitting around believing in God will not keep me out of the food. I must help others. It is vital to my survival. I saw, I felt, I believed. Notice how important that is. I hope that if I if I can accomplish anything today and we have a lot of we have time left and we're going to go through how bill is going to go into the steps and so on I hope that this sentence will mean more to you than it ever did and I hope that this sentence will be something that you will teach to your sponsees and that you will utilize in your everyday life. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. Pride that I could do the job myself or die trying. Prejudice, prejudice against a God that I felt allowed injustices to fester. There's not a person on this line right now that has not felt the sting of injustice. Some of you are very, very fresh in your feeling of injustice. Some of you, it was years ago and you're still carrying around hurt. I'm not criticizing you. I'm one of those people. They have a name for people like that. You know what they're called? They're called human beings. They're called human beings. A new world came into view. This new world that came into view is a world where, yes, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. But we can survive free of the food if we continue to work our steps. That's what's guaranteed here. Nobody is telling you, not now, not in the promises, not any. There is nothing in this book that says, now everything is going to go your way. There's nothing in this book that suggests that. <sighs> nothing. So anybody that comes in here with unrealistic expectations 
and says to themselves, yeah, I tried OA, and my daughter still skinned her knee, or my son married a bum, or my husband, he cheated on me, or my wife, she jumped out the window, whatever it is. doesn't matter. Nothing in this book says you do these things and everything is going to go your way. There's no, there's, there's no line in here. I've been studying this book for decades. If you find anything in the book that says now everything is going to go your way, I don't care what time it is, call me, please. Sorry. But what it says here is a new world came into view. And what is that world that came into view? The world that came into view is the world of sanity. Sanity. Notice that the second step doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sobriety. Notice that the wording of the second step is not came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. It doesn't say that. Why? Because that's too limiting. It's too, it's too uh, uh, contracted. It's too truncated. It's too small. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. That I would be sane rather than insane in all areas of my life, including the food. And that means... I'm going to have to be abstinent. I cannot today go out and get candy or cake or potato chips or any, I could go on and on. I can't ingest those substances and remain free of the desire to eat them. And the desire to eat more of those substances will haunt me to the point where I will not be able to sleep through the night. What it means, though, is if I stop ingesting those substances and I work the steps, a new world will come into view. Now, this is a very, very beautiful promise that most people miss. They don't even comment on it because it doesn't mean anything to them. You can open that up. You can, you can change that. You now have the knowledge to change it. But in order to change it, you're going to have to work your program and you're going to have to stay free of the food. Okay. Very, very important. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. Stop right there. Now, remember on page one when Bill Wilson goes to Winchester Cathedral and he sees what? What does he see in Winchester Cathedral? He sees a dog roll on a tombstone. And the tombstone says, Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. And pot was the way they drank beer in England at that time. Okay, so it's very, very important that he says the real significance of my experience. What did he see? He saw the grave of a man who drank himself to death. He saw the grave of a man who drank himself to death. 
And he didn't want to do that. But he didn't know how to avoid it. He was smart. Bill was a smart man. He was a hard-working man. Remember I told you that at the beginning of this that he passed the Edison test. And Thomas Edison used to give boys a test that wanted to take it in math and science to see if they could apprentice with him. And Bill passed the test, but he didn't, he didn't do it. Bill found an old violin up in Grandpa's attic, and he tirelessly practiced on the violin and became co-first chair of his school's orchestra. And him and Lois would play music all their lives. He on the violin and she on the piano. Her piano and his violin are still on display if you go to Bedford Hills in New York and go to Stepping Stones. You can see her piano and you can see his violin. And he found a baseball glove up there, and he became starting shortstop of his school's baseball team and co-captain. He was a hard-working guy. He was smart. He was clever. But he wasn't smart enough to beat alcoholism. I have friends of mine on this line right now and friends of mine that are not on this line right now. One of my friends on this line right now from, got a law degree from the University of Colorado in Boulder, and she was a lawyer. She couldn't beat this disease. She was a very capable person. She's retired now. But she was a very capable person, smart, couldn't, couldn't beat this disease. Another friend of mine, he, was, he is a Ph.D. psychologist. He couldn't beat this disease. With everything he knew about the inner workings of the mind, he cannot beat this disease. I had friends of mine that are doctors and lawyers and all kinds of business people. They can't beat addiction. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me for a brief moment. I had needed and wanted God so he sees now that the only way he's not going to die from drinking himself to death is through a higher power, through God, that he chooses to call God. If God is, is a distasteful term for you, just say higher power. Or say in your mind whatever it is you, whatever it is is comfortable for you. You don't have to use the word God. Many people use group of drunks. Many people say other things that work for them. You don't want to call God he, call her she. You don't want to call it she, call it it, call it they, call it them, call it us, whatever it is. Whatever it is that works for you as long as your belief is that there's a power greater than yourself. To have him with me, notice him is capitalized, and he came. And how does he come? He comes by invitation. And how do I invite God into my life? Yes, it starts with a prayer. Yes, please, God, come and help me. But then it has to translate into action. 
but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors. And how many of us can relate to that? When he talks about worldly clamors, what's he talking about? He's talking about paying bills, and he's talking about uh, Lois has got, you know, Lois seems to get up in the wrong side of the bed these days and she's fighting with me constantly and this guy won't do this and people aren't sticking to my script. They have a name for people that exist like that. They're called human beings. That's part of being human. That's part of being human, mostly those within myself, top of 13. And so it had been ever since how blind I had been blind to what specifically, that no matter what happens, there is a power greater than myself, and my belief in that God must be translated into action if I'm going to remain free of the food or get free of the food, that there is no earthly explanation as to why I'm a compulsive overeater, and there is no earthly solution. And you see people all the time. They're coming in, and they want to give you the reason why they ate compulsively. It's always the mom, the dad, the culture, the religion, the nationality. My nationality celebrates with food. Do you know a religion that doesn't? Do you know a culture that doesn't celebrate with food? Do you know of a religion or a culture or a race or a creed or a group that doesn't celebrate with food? If you do, boy, I'd like to know that one. Because this is as ancient as time. Because food wasn't very easy to come by five, ten thousand years ago. They didn't have the grocery store at the corner. They didn't have the delicatessen or the whatever type of restaurant you like to go to. They didn't have it, you know, 8,000 years ago. So when you could get your hands on food, that alone could be a reason for celebratory activity. Very, very important. Now, before we continue, let's take you to what's going on that's not written about, okay? The end of November, Ebby Thatcher visits Bill Wilson, and Ebby Thatcher is going to show Bill Wilson that he is sober, and he is going to enlighten Bill as to how he got sober and how he remains sober. Okay. On December 11th, 1934, about 6 p.m., December 11th, 1934, Bill Wilson has been going to Oxford group meetings. He has been drunk this entire time. He walks into the town's hospital in New York City drunk after an Oxford group meeting. He's drunk at the meeting. He goes to Dr. Silkworth, and for the third time, 
he is going to be hospitalized at the town's hospital, and he is going to walk into the hospital waving a bottle of gin. Obviously, he's inebriated. Obviously, he's very loud. One of the things that happens when you start drinking too much is your hearing gets affected. A lot of times drunks are very, very loud because they can't hear themselves. They can't hear how loud they're yelling. And he says to Dr. Silkworth, who is attending a patient in the hallway, he is attending a patient. He looks up and it's Bill. And Bill is waving a bottle of gin, yelling, Hey, Doc, I have found something. I have found something. And Silkworth assumes that what he has found is this bottle of gin. So he says to Bill Wilson on the 11th of December, 1934, it appears you have, my boy. Go upstairs and take your clothes off, get into bed, and I'll be up to attend to you directly. Bill Wilson is going to be sober on the 12th of December and the 13th of December. He is going to get two days of sobriety, not two weeks, not two months, not two years. Okay? He is going to get two days of sobriety. And on the 14th of December, 1934, he is going to be transformed, and so will the world. Page 13. At the hospital, Towns Hospital, New York, Silkworth, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. So abstinence had to come first, right? Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. And delirium tremens are the shaking that you see these guys doing. A lot of them look like a fox terrier trying to crap out a peach pit. They're shaking so bad. And he's got delirium tremens. Not good. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. This is what we know today as the first three steps of AA. Steps one, two, and three. And if you read through there, you will find steps one, two, and three. Let's continue. We're, it's later than I thought it was. I, I, I thought it was like 10, 15 minutes earlier. Okay. I ruthlessly faced my sins, step four and became willing to have my newfound friend capitalized, take them away root and branch, steps six and seven. You want me to go through that again? I will. I ruthlessly faced my sins, step four. What is step four? Your resentments, your fears, your sexual harms done others. And in that, you uncover your defects of character, fear, dishonesty, resentment, 
uh, uh, self-seeking, selfishness. So you start to uncover, discover, and discard. And these are your sins. This is what step four is. And became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch, steps six and seven. So in this paragraph, he is working what we know today as steps one, two, three, four, six, and seven. I'm going to repeat that again. In this paragraph, he is working steps one, two, three, four, six, and seven. There were no six and seven at that time. I'm translating it into modern steps. Modern principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. I have not had a drink since. Now, let's see if we can get through as much as we can get through, and then we're going to stop. I'm not going to rush through things. I would rather wait till next week. I'm not going to rush through things, because this is not the forum for rushing. The rushing comes from some of the other meetings and some of the other things. My schoolmate visited me. Let's stop right there. And I, okay, that's Ebby Thatcher. And what is Ebby Thatcher got under his arm? This is the 14th of December, 1934. Ebby comes to see his friend in the hospital. And what does he have under his arm? He has a copy of a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. This book was written by a psychologist for psychologists, and it was written from a series of lectures at the University of Glasgow in Scotland in 1902, excuse me, 1903. What is this book? Why is this book so important? It is one of the four books that went into the creation of the big book, and it is vital because this is the reason that you have the stories in the back of the book. The varieties of religious experience, I don't want you to get all, all distracted now. We're, Bill is working the steps, but the reason that I'm telling you this is to give you information. Varieties of religious experience is a book about people who discovered God. What, hap what were they like? What happened to them? There was always a catastrophe, and what are they like now? And Ebby comes to see him, and I don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time. <sighs> Sorry, my allergies are flaring up today. I'm in the desert, and it's really now, it's really going to get hot now this week. We're going to have some, we're going to have some very high temperatures this week. June is the hottest month here. Um, but everything is just, the allergies are just killing me. Okay, my schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Step five. That is step five. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Step eight. So in this paragraph, we have worked five and eight. I express my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong, step nine. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it is also part of ten. Never was I to be critical of them, step ten. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability, step nine. 
So in this paragraph, don't get too distracted with the William James stuff. I'm giving you information because I trust you that you won't get distracted by it. But under Ebby's arm was the varieties of religious experience. But in this paragraph, we have worked step five. We have worked step eight, nine, ten. So right now we have worked so far in his first day of sobriety, one, two, three, four, six, seven, five, eight, nine, and ten. I gave it to you in the order that he worked them, but I'm, you can put it in order any way that you like. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay? So let's take a look now at the next paragraph. It is pure Oxford group, and it is pure step 11. This paragraph will be written almost verbatim on page 87. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. Step 11. So you see that in order to work step 11, we have got to be divorced from the type of prayer that we have been praying all of our lives. And what I would pray for is, if a girl would fall in love with me, or could I have a catcher's mitt, or could I have a pony, whatever, I mean, could I have Reese's peanut butter cups, could I be a millionaire, could I get bit by a radioactive spider and become Spider-Man, could I be the quarterback for the Bears, these are the kind of prayers that I would pray my entire life, and those prayers are a waste of time. What I want to pray today is how can I best serve thee, thy will not mine be done? How can I be of maximum service to you, God, and the people about me? Not what can I suck out of the marrow of the bone of life. How can I be of service to you, God? Like you, I have disappointment in my life. I have a daughter, does not speak to me. I have... Uh, a year ago, I was with a, a beautiful girl. We, we were in a nice relationship, blah, blah, blah. Today, I'm alone. There, and I wish I could retire. We were talking about that before the meeting started. I wish I could retire. I wish I didn't have to work anymore. I wish I was independently wealthy. I wish I was Batman. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. But here's where I am. These are the cards that I was dealt. Now, how can I be of service? How can I be of service to you? How can I be of service to you, God, and be of service to other people? That's what I want to get my guidance from. That's what I want to do. 
Because in order for faith to be real, it must be translated into action. In order for my faith to go beyond uttering a bunch of prayers in a synagogue that mean very little to me, or nothing, I must translate, and I'm not knocking Judaism, I'm not knocking religion. It has its place, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. I am not knocking it. I'm just sharing with you my life. Most of the time when I went to synagogue, I parroted back prayers in Hebrew, which is a language I really don't understand. I was taught to read it, I was taught to write it, but I didn't understand 90% of what I was reading or writing. And I was taught to parrot back prayers that meant nothing to me. Nothing. And now what I need to remember is, in order for faith to be real, it must translate into action. You've heard me say this if you're on vision. You've heard me say this if you come to the Scottsdale meetings. You've heard me say this if you went to meetings with me back in Chicago, back in the day. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. It is an action program. Let's continue. We don't have much time left. My friend promised, now we're at the bottom of 13. Who's my friend? It's in small letters. It's Ebby. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. Creator is capitalized. That I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. No matter what I'm facing today, no matter what I am facing today, more food, more selfishness, more dishonesty, more self-seeking, more fear is not going to improve that situation. It's not going to help. No matter what I'm doing today, eating Doritos is not going to help me. It's not going to make the situation better. So what, he, what he's telling him is this way of living, this faith-based living, is going to answer all your problems. Tomorrow is my belly button birthday. It's going to bother me probably that my daughter isn't going to acknowledge my birthday. It's very heartbreaking for me. But you know what? I'm going to throw myself the harder into helping others. When I start to feel that low-down feeling, I'm going to throw myself the harder into helping other people. And you know what? It doesn't make my daughter call me, but it makes me feel better. It makes me feel better. I would have, all, I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God very important there. Belief in the power of God. To do what? To keep me out of the food. Because that's the whole bottom line to everything I've struggled with my entire life. Everything else was just a, a, a straw man. Everything else was a red herring. 
What I really wanted was I wanted the ability to eat all the food I wanted and not gain weight and not suffer the consequences. Belief in the power of God, that that's possible for me to live free of the food if I just do this willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. And going back here, if I have willingness, honesty, and humility, what am I going to be doing? I'm going to be taking action which is going to help other people. I'm going to be translating that faith into action. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. When all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. This is an altruistic movement. Do I need to go on? We cannot... We cannot help others occasionally. We must play the Good Samaritan every day. Every single day I have a progressive illness. I must reach back into my quiver and I must pull something out of my quiver which will enable me to take an action today which supersedes that what I did yesterday. <clears throat> because my disease got worse. Every night that I go to sleep, every day that I'm alive, three things happen, and they're all bad in terms of me and my illness. My disease got worse. It's a progressive illness. My disease got worse. Number two, things are changing, which is some of those changes are going to freak me out. Things, my disease got worse, things are changing, and people are going to not stick to my script. And those are things which, unchecked by the steps, will catapult me back into negative thinking, and that negative thinking will demand, it will demand peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or pizza. It will demand those things, and it will convince me that those things are fine, that I deserve them, that it's perfectly okay for me to eat them, because after all, I haven't eaten them in X amount of days, hours, weeks, whatever, and this is where the disease lies to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. To establish and maintain. And how do I do that? I do that through action. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I need to be more focused on what I can do for others than what's going to be done for me. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. Some of you come from an Al-Anon background. Some of you come from a codependent background. Some of you have been doormats 
some of you have been doing for others and those others didn't appreciate what you were doing and here I am on the phone or here you are on the recording thinking this is crazy why should I do for all these people when they don't do a thing for me now here's the difference and I want to I want to be very clear on this I don't care if we finish or I don't, we're going to finish. I don't care how far we go. I want to cover this ground. This is vital ground in my opinion. What is the difference between the alanonic condition and, and a healthy giving? The difference boils down to expectations and results. If I am giving to you with quid pro quo on my mind. What is quid pro quo? Quid pro quo is a Latin term. It's used in, in legal terms. It's, it's a legal term. It means you do this and I'll do that. If I am giving to you and I am expecting that I'm going to get a return on my investment by giving to you, that is sick. It's sick. And that is not what we're talking about when we say giving. It's not what we're talking about when we say take action. That is manipulation. That is not giving. When I have an expectation of a result, that is manipulation. Giving with no expectation of a result. And I don't just mean, you know, drying your back or, or, or throwing out your garbage. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? That may be part of it. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is helping the next sick addict. There is so much pain in the world. There is so much suffering in the world from this addiction. This is, without a doubt, the most widespread horrific addiction there is. Obesity is the number one mitigating factor for death by corona. When you go into the areas that are hardest hit by corona, the African-American community, the Native American community. What is it about these communities that makes these groups of people so vulnerable to die by corona? It's the instances of extreme morbid obesity. The next one is lungs, and the next one is comprom compromised immune system, chemotherapy. If you're on chemotherapy, if you, ha if you are taking a drug that is suppressing your immune system, these are all things that have nothing to do with obesity, of course. But the number one mitigating factor is obesity. Age, obviously, too. Obesity. And this is what we're talking about, serving God's addicted children. That's what we're talking about. I am not talking about you giving money to somebody who wrapped their tree or car around a tree. I'm not talking about that. If that's what you want to do, go do it. That's fine. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not, but that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about service to God's addicted children. 
Let's see if we can finish one more paragraph, and then next week we're going to see Bill working step 12, and we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about next week too. But let's see if we can just finish the next one. Simple but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light, capitalized. He's talking about God, who presides over us all. So it isn't just the food that I'm giving God. It isn't just my romance life I'm giving to God, or lack thereof, or finances. I'm not just giving my health over to God. I'm giving everything to God on every day. And how do I do that? By taking action. I'm going to take action. It is vital for me to take that action. I must translate faith into action. I hope I've said that enough times today. We have a time frame. How do you work the steps? You work them quickly. There's no reason under God's earth that they must take six months and a year and two years and three. There's no reason on God's earth that it has to take so long. A chapter a day is not too much to do. The faster they're worked, the more effective that work becomes, the more fruitful the result is. So we have a situation whereby we are looking at Bill Wilson and we see how quickly he's moving through. Obviously, he has resentment, or not resentment, he has amends that he needs to make and he couldn't make them all in the hospital he's going to work on them but we saw that he has now worked through the first 11 steps in one day and as we study through bill dotson if you're a regular listener of um of uh vision for you could I, i'm getting seen now if you're a regular listener of Vision for You, you're going to find that Bill Dotson is working through the steps very quickly, too. Very, very quickly. It's very important. Okay, one other thing I did want to mention. I got a text message from a friend, and she is reminding me that on June the 6th, there is that big picnic uh, at Stepping Stones, I mentioned Bill's house where the violin was and the piano was. It's online this year. It's free. You can attend. And if you want information on that, just Google Stepping Stones, and it will give you information as to how you can join in online. And that is something that I think may be of interest to, to some of you. So I'm going to open up the lines. Actually, I don't even need to. I'm not even going to stop the recording yet. I'm going to let you hit star six if anybody has any questions at all. And for 15 minutes, we can do Q&A. I, I know we went very slow today. I do know that. I understand we went very slow today. But I knew we were going to go slow today because there's so much there that needs to be examined in a more detailed, a more pedantic method. So I, I told you last week we were going to go very slow this week, and I hope that, I hope that it helped. 
not that we went slow, but that we covered these grounds, and I hope that it was very helpful. So if you have any questions for the next 15 minutes, hit star six, and you should be able to unmute yourself. If you can't mute yourself, unmute yourself. Let me, you know, I, I, don't, I shouldn't have to do anything. Yeah, hit star six, and I will take questions. <laughs> Hi, Harlan. It's Maria S. here. Thanks so much, Harlan. Hi. Brilliant. You're very welcome, um, hi. Maria. Thanks, Harlan. Just two quick questions. I couldn't keep, I couldn't keep up. One of them was, you said, the difference between religious belief and spiritual growth, and I didn't hear the rest. I didn't get the rest of that. Is that the spiritual there, growth must be translated into action of helping other addicts, helping other people. I can sit in the synagogue and pray all day long and I don't have to help anyone. I don't have to help anybody. But in here, you have to help others in order to translate that into spiritual recovery. You must help okay, other thanks, people, Pilate. other suffering. And one other Sure. Thanks, one other. You said as well, um, uh, steps two and 10 are the most um, underutilized steps. And, uh, and then you said, what were the other three and nine? Three what did you say about three and nine? Three and four are the most misunderstood. Three and four are the most misunderstood, and two and ten are the most underutilized steps. Where you see people struggling, you will usually see people struggling because of a complete absence of two and ten. And where you see people mystified, it's because you have this misunderstanding of three and four. They are so simple. How long should it take a person to work step three? About 30 seconds. You have the information in one, that you are a compulsive overeater. You have the information in two, that you've come to believe or you're willing to believe that there's a power greater than yourself, which will, which will solve your problem. How long should step three take? About 30 seconds. What is step three? Step three is just, here I am, God. I'm going to now work steps four through 12 every day for the rest of my life. Step three shouldn't take more than 30 seconds. And yet you see people and they're writing and they're reading and they're pondering and they're perseverating and pontificating on it. My God, they can, they can go on for weeks. Hit step four, get it done in two, three hours. There's, not a, there's nothing in there that you don't know. Step four, who do you okay. resent? Why do you resent them? What uh, instincts are affected? What did you do to bring it about? If anything, what defects were brought to the surface? Four columns. Now, fear. Well, who or what do you fear? Why do you fear it? What instincts are brought to the surface? What did you do, if anything, to bring it about? What defects of character were brought to the surface? There's not a question there that you don't know. You know who you resent, why you resent them. And if you miss something, that's why we have step 10. It's no big deal. Now you've got your sexual inventory on four. Who did you hurt? What did you do to them? What instincts were affected? What defects were brought to the surface? And what should you have done instead? There's not a question there you don't know the answer to. Yes. It's quick. It's easy. But in our zeal, in our zeal to complicate things, in our zeal to overcomplicate things, we add shit in that's not there. Mm. We add all kinds of stuff in to the fourth step and the third step, and it's not in the book. It's not justifiable. 
I had one woman call me in tears at the first of the year this year. Tears. She can't get through her character asset inventory. She doesn't know what to write down. And I said, there is no character asset inventory in the big book. There's no such thing. There's nothing in the big book that says, now we inventory our character assets. Nothing. There's no justification for it. It's the things in our path which has caused our failure. We're going to uncover, discover, and discard. That's all. Very simple. Very simple. Great. Thanks, Harlan. Thanks, Maria. Thank I love you. you. Great. All right. Who's, uh, we've Thanks. got time for love you, Harlan. Two Thanks. What was that? Somebody? Anybody? Okay. Well, I'll I'll jump in then. Okay, uh, who's this? This is Suzanne in Ohio, in Akron, Ohio, the home Suzanne of Suzanne in Akron, Ohio. So we can all eat lunch at Suzanne's house when we come to see Dr. Bob's house and the house next door and the Mayflower and Dr. And Bob's grave. grave. We gotta go. To, we gotta go to his grave. Got to go to his grave, and then you got to go to the Cyberling Gatehouse, and yeah. also, uh, well, sent, the Mayflower. I just sent you an article. I just sent you an article about that. Okay. All right. I, Suzanne, how can I help you? I'm the one that knew it was Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil anyway. B. DeMille. Okay. All right. You know, the voice of God. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yes. All right. Thou anyway, shalt have no other gods before me. Yes. Okay. How, how can fire I help you? And it was carved. Anyway, right. I, I want to I thank you for your sharing. Thanks. I mean, I was, I'm on a walk in the park, but I, could, I was shaking my head up and down on almost everything you said. Mm. It really makes sense. And uh, I like what you said about the character assets inventory there is no such thing in the big no book nope. tell that to some of my fellow OAers they spend their lives racking their brains over that they want to overcomplicate oh. steps three and four and in Yiddish there's a word called ungeblizzled and in Yiddish the word ungeblizzled means overcomplicated overthought Uga ungeblizzled. Ungeblizzled means over, overdone, yeah. overthought. Ungeblizzled, I'm saying. Ungeblizzled, okay, yes. You know, Ungeblizzen. you had to meet my grandmother to know that. All right. Anyway, um, but I, I, I just, because I've racked my brains over it too, and now that you've said that, I'm asking myself, why did I do that? There's no such instruction in the book to do a character asset inventory. There's other things, too, that people add in. I mean, I could go on forever, but there are things people add in and change and stuff. I have no idea. The program works as it's written. I, I don't really yeah, understand. Didn't, um, didn't um, Dr. Bob say to Bill, let's not louse this thing up, right. let's keep it simple? Keep it simple. Let's not yeah. louse this up. Let's keep it simple, and that's. I've heard. Something. I've heard the expression "kiss." Keep kiss, it simple. Keep it simple. Stupid. stupid. Yeah. Yep. Keep it simple. Stupid. So, yep. I, I'm glad that I listened to you. I'm now working my ninth step. Good. And I'm trying not to let things impede my progress on that. Excellent. Because I, I too believe they're to be done quickly. Excellent. And I'm working with a great sponsor, 
Good. Yeah, and um, I just appreciate these meetings every week. Excellent. Really, really good. Thank you. Thank you. Then we're, if, we're if I could talk keep... to you, I would really appreciate it. If you could what? Talk to me. You, you on the phone. You can talk to me anytime you want to. You can call me All anytime, right. day or night. Not a problem. Well, see, I'm available 24-7, too, so that doesn't yeah. bother me. Yeah. Anytime. All right, well, then. I'll, I'll leave the space for other people that want to share. Okay. We're all bunking in with Suzanne when we meet up in Akron, Ohio. So, Suzanne, get the your... The beds are already made. Okay. Uh, the beds are made, and she's ready for us. So just email her your dietary needs, and she'll provide for them. Okay. Thanks, Suzanne. Yeah, just call me, and I'll write them down. All, all right. right. We have time for one more question. One more. Uh, Holly, could we have your phone number? My phone number is 480-495-8961. That's 480-495-8961. Thank you so much. Any, I anytime you want. We have time for one more question. We have five minutes left. Hello, Harlan. This is Kathy Jane. Hi, Kathy. This is Kathy J in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Kathy. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for letting me know that you believe that God cried too when we went through our hurt and shame, trauma experiences in the past. Uh, I have dealt with that so long and wondering how did God feel about it. And today you gave me a new uh, outlook on my relationship and because I was feeling a little resentment toward my higher power and today I'm this com this meeting has really helped me look at it differently and good. I want to say thank you so much Harlan good thank you Kathy that's great and there are so many people who have resentments against God and there are so many people whose concept of a higher power is adversarial to them their concept of a higher power is one who is adversarial. Now, why would I want to go around trying to believe or be willing to believe that God loves me when God is adversarial to me? So we have to change those conceptions of God that just don't work for us anymore. They just don't work. And we have to shed them like a snake sheds its skin. And this is what we can do. And this is, this is the way we do it. We sit down with a sponsor or with God and we pray and we say, I don't need a judgment. I don't need a judging God. I don't need a God that's going to punish me. I don't need a God that's going to kick my butt. I've had my butt kicked plenty of times. I've had my butt kicked more times than you know what to do with. I don't need that anymore. I don't want that anymore. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have a God that is kind to me. I'm going to have a God that is benevolent to me. I want a loving, caring, wonderful God. And that's the kind of God that I have in my heart. Maybe somebody out there needs a God that's going to kick their butt. I don't. Maybe out there there's somebody, they need a, a harsh God and a God that's just not very nice to them. God bless them. It's God as you understand God. It's God as you understand God. 
Okay. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome, Kathy. I'm so glad that you you, you uh, got that last question in there. Okay. Uh, could I get your oh. phone number Couldn't again? Want could I get your phone number again? My phone number is 480-495-8961. Thank you so much. 480-495-8961. Harlan, this is Tony. 